Well, aloha from Maui, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and uh, nice to be with you this Sunday and every Sunday afternoon. We are available by podcast, of course, and streaming replay, if that's easier for you. And uh, yet, it's always fun to join us live, whether by web or telephone, and I hope you're able to do that uh, today listening today you'll be able to participate if you wish a little later in the class Uh, about 30 or 40 minutes from now I'll open it up and uh, let you ask any questions you have or um, make any comments that you want to make you can even do that before the program when I opened up this morning I saw there was a question in here somebody left yesterday or the day before that that uh, I'll address when we get to that point. So here we go, the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and the first of a six-part series called Feeling Like Yourself. I like to separate yourself into two words because there really is a lot to the whole idea of identity and who is this self. For we are more, if you're a regular listener or even an occasional listener to this series, you know that uh, we often talk about how much more we are than we appear to be, more than the apparent self, more than the ego self or egoic self. We have a higher self, and um, that's the self that we're talking about when we describe this series, feeling like yourself. Um, Learn to fly. Learn to feel like yourself. That's what this six-part series is all about. Now, I have taught this program for over 20 years privately. It's about a $1,500 training in a one-on-one private situation. I taught it as a career training It was really the heart and soul of a 160-hour classroom career training that I taught in Los Angeles for four or five years before moving to Hawaii in um, 2008. And um, in that case, it was a $4,000 training. We're going to give it to you for free here because, um, well... I just think you deserve it. And that's the way we do things on the Internet. Um, We do it for free. It's all for free. We do have a series of premium audio programs, of course, that I like to talk about because I'm so proud of them. It's a a series that I do with my partner, Steve Snyder, where you can buy programs for as little as 99 cents for a full program they run usually 45 to 55 minutes, studio quality, both of us in conversation, and we also include, like this class, a guided meditation. And those are premium audio programs that you can discover, listen to excerpts, even sign up for for a free account and get six trial programs, complete programs, six of them, absolutely free 
All of that's at focusedpassion.com. Remember the E-D, it's the W's dot focusedpassion.com. Otherwise, everything else that we do is absolutely for free. And um, so I don't know that I'll ever teach this as a career training again. For those of you who want private work, I still do marriage counseling and couples counseling over the telephone. Don't talk about it much, but um, my calendar's pretty full. I guess that's why, and I really enjoy doing it. And other kinds of counseling for um, career problems, uh, just for stress and anxiety, um, fears and phobias, um, sleep disorders, all matter of of anxiety disorders, panic attacks, uh, stress management in general. I still do all of that by telephone, and I do this program by phone as well. But I'm going to put it out here for you today. One part today, the first of six, and then in each week we'll do the successive bits and pieces. Again, you can review these against the six that I did a year and a half ago. I just think it's time to reprise it. So these six are in the archives, and you can go back and listen to the version from 2008 that I did in the fall of 2008, anytime you want. And you'll find the same six programs, but of course, I'm doing these uh, newly, so <laughs> you'll get slightly different information, or at least have it said in a slightly different way. Unless you be confused going through the archives, say, hey, wait a minute, didn't he do that in uh, the fall of 08? Yeah, I did. And probably a year and a half or two from now, I'll do it again. So here we go. Self-love is the first of the six. Let me run down all six. Again, the program is called Feeling Like Yourself. It's an introduction to your true identity and the six parts are as follows. Number one is self-love. That's what we're going to talk about today. What is self-love? What does it mean to even love yourself? And which self is it? I've already suggested it's not really the ego or egoic self that we love so much as the higher self, although the ego needs a hug every once in a while, too. Uh, then there's five more parts, right? The second part is healing childhood hurt. And we're going to show you a very effective, simple technique that you can do on several occasions, a kind of a regression to go back into your childhood and look at some of the more significant situations where you were hurt or upset. Uh, either by your parents, or it might have been siblings, or a bully up the block. It might have been um, your best friend's parents, or a school teacher, uh, a bus driver, a coach, a stranger on the street. When we're kids, we get traumatized uh, in lots of diff different ways, and we can go back and better understand from an adult point of view what happened to us as children, and make some significant shifts in our belief systems, our worldview, and actually release 
learn to understand and, and then release the negative effects of that stress from, from the childhood damage. So healing childhood hurt will be next week at this time. And then the third part is also emotional intelligence, and that's really about healing current hurt from today, from yesterday or the day before, whatever is going on in your life now. How do you interpret the language of feelings? How do you understand yourself better in terms of what you're feeling right now? So those are the first three, right? This week, next week, and the following week, all emotional intelligence, self-love today, next week, healing that hurt from our childhoods, and then part three, two weeks from today, we'll talk about basic emotional intelligence, your EQ, why you feel the way you feel and, and, and what you can learn about yourself from that. Then sessions four and five are more of the mental nature. This is problem solving and decision making. You're going to find out about a month from now that there's really only two problems you'll ever face only two kinds of problems in the most general sense. We're going to divide all of your problems into two categories. How about if I say it that way? Based on whether you know what you want. You know, the, the first and most common kind of problem is people don't know what to do because they don't really know what they want. They figure, what's the point of deciding definitively my goal or solution, my my desired outcome if I don't know how to get there. Well, that's backward thinking. You can't get there, there is no there, if you haven't yet decided what it is that you want. You have to, as Stephen Covey says, I like to give him credit for this, uh, Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. You've got to know what you want before you can know what to do to get it. All right. So that would be the first kind of problem. Hey, I don't know what I want. I don't know what would solve this problem. I don't know what goal would make me happy. I don't know what result would uh, satisfy me. Right? I, I don't know the outcome. That's the first kind of problem. Well, then the only other kind of problem would be well, I do know the goal, but my problem is getting it or getting there, getting to it, or somehow making it happen. The, the, the means now becomes the problem, not the end so much. And so we'll look at problem-solving techniques for that first kind of problem where you know what you want, but you're not sure, or let's see, that's the order we'll teach it in. Uh, actually, the first problem we'll talk about in session four is I do know what I want, but I'm not sure how to get there. And I'll give you three techniques, three very powerful and effective techniques for solving a problem where you know the outcome, the goal or solution. You got the target, but you're not sure how to get there. All right. And then the following week, week five, uh, we'll talk about uh, two practical techniques for those situations where your problem is even more fundamental. Gosh, I don't even know what there is. Uh, what is the outcome? What is the goal? 
lot of people protest. They say, how can I solve a problem if I, if I have to know the solution first? <laughs> it's as if they believe all problems are about making an approach to some unknown thing. and You, you won't know the solution until the very end. Well, school is often that way, but in the real world, we have both kinds of problems, and it's 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 common to have a solution or a goal in mind, but still have a problem making it happen or or creating it. Even more popular is I don't know what to do because I don't know where where I want to end up. Right. So sessions four and five, and then number six, peak performance. And that'll be a little blend of sports psychology, I think. And um, I'd also like to talk about some pain control and healing. Um, I've had that requested. So there's accelerated learning also that I could do. And I may even do that as part seven. I may even tack that on the end. Okay? And so these six basic uh, classes constitute the program I'm calling and have called for so many years, Feeling Like Yourself. I tell my clients, I'll teach you to fly. You can learn to fly feeling like yourself, a program in self-discovery and self-development. You cannot develop what you haven't discovered. So first you must be introduced to yourself, and then you begin to open the presence, the gifts, <laughs> the the talents and abilities that you've been born with that need some some further development. That's what your life's all about. It's amazing that it could be that simple and remain that unknown. So many people have these great fundamental existential questions about their lives. It's simple. You're here to know yourself and grow yourself and then express that in service to other people. I'll say it again. Uh, to know yourself, to grow yourself, and then to express that creatively to other people, to help them do the same thing, to discover themselves, and then develop what they discover. All right, That's, that's the overall purpose. You're here to discover who you are. And what are you for? You're for discovering who you are, you see. So here we go. Starting with self-love, and this may be in some ways the trickiest of all. Um, very few of us have any idea what self-love really means. It's embarrassing for a lot of folks to even think about it. If I asked you to love yourself... I don't suppose you'd really know exactly what to do. If I asked you to sit or stand in front of a mirror and speaking to the image in the mirror uh, as if to yourself, uh, tell yourself how much you love who you are, um, I think few people would even do it. And if you did do it, you'd feel embarrassed about it. It's sort of a silly exercise. Um, but self-love is an imperative because we have no love for others if we can't love ourselves. All love flows through your own love 
for you. Now, that little axiom was coined by my business partner, Steve Snyder, uh, 35, 40 years ago when he was a boy. And he taught it to me. I've heard others say it in similar ways. I think Steve's approach is a very beautiful and elegant approach to say that you cannot love another beyond your willingness and ability to love yourself. You cannot love another person more than you love yourself. I know a lot of people would argue that (laughs) because they misunderstand the whole concept. But as you understand the concept of love and self-love, you'll understand what I mean. And in the same way, just as you don't have more love to give than you could allow for yourself, you could not receive love from anyone beyond your willingness to love yourself. So the love you have for yourself is a threshold or a ceiling beyond which you could not give or receive love in relationship with anybody else. See, when we talk about love, and in particular love in its primary self-love sense, I think we have to challenge the whole idea that it can be given or received. Not really. Love is not a commodity that we can pass around and give or receive. It's more of an electromagnetic force. It is, I would argue, the the magnetic essence of divinity. Um, But it has to be something that you can experience and manage. Otherwise, what good is a statement like the magnetic essence of divinity? That doesn't have any meaning. It never would have any meaning, never will have any meaning unless you can access that love or wield that love, use that love somehow in your life. You can call that giving, but I'd like to say that when you stand in a field, a unified field, an electromagnetic field of energy that is love, There are positive and negative forces in this unified field. There is attraction and uh, rejection, or, or attraction and repulsion, but no giving and receiving, per se. So it may be a fine point, but I think it's a very important point that love is like an ocean, or again, a magnetic field. Remember when you were in grade school, you probably at some time were given an opportunity to sprinkle iron filings on a sheet of paper that you held and shook gently over a big bar magnet. And as you rattled that paper a little bit, uh, holding it just above the bar magnet, the iron filings would line up on that piece of paper, demonstrating that the paper was indeed enveloped by a field, a magnetic field, with polarities 
a north end and a south end, but nevertheless a single unified field that surrounded the bar magnet. And if the paper was close enough, you rattled those iron filings, they'd line up and, and reveal that otherwise invisible magnetic field to you. All right. I think that's more what love is than handing somebody an object and saying, I love you, or trying to receive some commodity or quantity when we say, I need your love, please. Don't you love me? Can't you say that you care about me? All right. So I think that's the very first challenge of the day today, is to begin to consider that our language about giving and receiving love is technically incorrect. That love is more of a magnetic field. Um, uh, there's a passage in the book, The Little Prince, that refers to two people, it says something like, I can only paraphrase now, but it, uh, it, it's basically love is not two people looking at each other so much as love is two people sitting side by side looking in the same direction. Okay? Uh, I think that's really nice. Love is a shared experience. We're sharing the same love more than, here, I'm going to give you my love in exchange for which you're going to give me your love. Like, I don't know, you would swap clothes or something. You know, it doesn't work that way. It's more like two people uh, watching the sun go down or the, or the sun come up, <laughs> right? Sitting together looking in the same direction. That's from The Little Prince. I, I like that a lot. Uh, a friend of mine, a fellow I worked with at KABC Radio in the in the 1980s, Dr. David Viscott, um, has a quotable quote that I think deserves uh, a mention here as well. He said, um, to give and receive love is to feel the sun from both sides. Again, I'm, I'm challenging these words to give and receive love. But I think David is also. Again, he's saying it's really not giving and receiving. What we call giving and receiving love is really feeling uh, the sun from both sides. Um, that, that, that's a nice, sweet way of, of referring to this this experience of basking in love. You know, when you fall in love, like romantically fall in love, especially as a young person for the first or second time, uh, you not only fall in love with a particular individual, your whole life changes, right? People can cut you off in traffic and you're not upset or you're much less likely to even be disturbed by it. Um, barking dogs and crying babies don't seem to irritate you nearly as much because you're in love. Uh, you could get a cold or a flu bug and hardly even complain about it because you're in love. Um, 
sometimes you even lose your appetite and forget to eat, but it's okay. You're not really hungry because you're in love. You're, you're in this ocean of love. You're in this electromagnetic field of love. That's different than giving somebody love like you would give them your hat or an apple or the keys to your car, you know. So this is where we begin, I think, when we talk about self-love and when we talk about this whole six-part series, feeling like yourself, to discover who you are and what you're for. This is really where it all begins. What is love? What is self-love? This is what all religions fundamentally are about, what they're supposed to be about, what they say they're about, although in practice it doesn't always work out that way. And for Christians, it's even, you know, it's indisputable. It is stated clearly in the Gospels that God is love. It's in certainly in John, God is love. I, I don't quote chapter and verse. You, you, you look it up if you'd like. All right. So what does that mean? self-love. Well, let's talk about our desire to receive love from other people. Let's talk about the problem with seeing love as a commodity, which we could describe as being the victim of love. Isn't there an eagle song about being a victim of love? Uh, and we sure know that, right? Somebody decides they don't love us after all. Uh, you get the Dear John letter or that phone call, I think we should start seeing other people. Or I just want us to be friends. Oh, God, I hate that one, don't you? And uh, it feels like love lost. Or somebody betrays you or lies to you or cheats on you or moves out of town or they drop over dead and abandon you, right? All of that feels or or certainly can feel on a lower emotional level like lost love when in fact we're only losing the appearance of love. But let's go a little bit farther now. Let's talk about this example of uh, giving and receiving love, this example that I often use. And if you've heard me use this before, be patient with me and, and, and tolerate me going through the story again. Because there's a lot of folks that have never heard anything like this. The, the example I give is to imagine that uh, there's two people in a life raft out in the middle of the ocean, some sort of rubber life raft, okay? Hold on a sec here. And neither of these people can swim like they were on board the Titanic or something and, and the boat sank and they ended up in the rubber life raft and they have no life preservers and neither of them can swim. And they admit this to each other. They're starting to freak out. What if we lose this rubber life raft, right? Um, 
you get a little hole in this or something, glug, 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 we're fish bait. I can't save myself. I can't swim. And the other person says, me neither, and we have no life preservers. What will we do? And they think about their dilemma for a while, and suddenly one of them gets what appears to be a great idea and says to the other one, I know, I know, (laughs) I know what we'll do. There's even a name for it. I'm not sure why I didn't think of it sooner. It's called the, the, uh, oh yeah, it's called the golden rule. It means we have to take care of each other and save each other. And the other guy says, what are you talking about? And the first guy says, well, you can't swim, you can't save yourself. I can't swim. I can't save myself. We don't have life preservers. We need each other. This we got to use the golden rule. And if you save me, well, I promise I'll do my best to save you. Or we could do it the other way around, right? I'll save you if you promise that you'll save me. And usually about this point, my clients look at me with this blank expression on their face, like, Michael, that's either the dumbest story I've ever heard, uh, or why are, you, why are you going on like this? This is ridiculous. Um, but if I ask my student, why is this stupid? What is ridiculous about it? I find that most have a difficult time explaining why it's ridiculous. Everybody seems to know it's absurd. If they can't swim and they can't save themselves, they're not in a position to be offered to save each other, even though that's what they apparently need to do, right? That's an offer you can't make. I'll save you if you save me, or if you save me, then I'll save you. And uh, so I say, uh, what's the moral? And again, more than half couldn't really put it into a sentence. So I would say about a third, maybe 40%, would come up with a phrase, something like, well, I guess the moral would be you can't really do anything for another person that you're unable to do for yourself. Now, I like that. You cannot do anything for another person that you're unable to do for yourself. So what's the problem here? Why is this so ridiculous? And if it is ridiculous, non-swimmers making a plan to save each other, if the raft gets a leak in it, then what are we doing in our lives when as empty, lonely people We go out into the world looking for other empty, lonely people and promise to fill each other up with love. What is love? And where does it come from that two people with no love in their lives can get together and promise to love each other? This is usually the point where people just write it off and say, leave it to the poets and the philosophers. I can't figure this out. Love is just too magical and too mysterious. I don't know how two people with no love in their lives can come together and promise to love each other. The truth is, 
I, <laughs> I have no idea how that could be. Right. Let's say that I give you a little puppy or a little kitten. Uh, you might be you might like cats better than dogs. I don't know. But if I give you a little baby critter of some kind or other, some little soft, cuddly creature, and it likes you, like the little kitty curls up in your lap and purrs, or the dog is anxiously licking your face and wagging its tail and just so super in love with you that you can't hardly believe it, and you feel that love for this animal, you feel your love for this animal. Where did that come from? And about half of my clients say it came from the animal. And I would say, you mean this dog, this little puppy, this little kitten just now has made a decision to love you? And some might say, well, no, it would love anybody you gave it to. It's just in love with life. It's excited and enthusiastic, and, and anybody that treats it well, it's going to love. All right? Why? What is love? And how would you feel it? How would you know it? Are you psychic that you know this dog loves you? Isn't it possible this is your love for the dog? Can you distinguish your love for the animal from the animal's love for you? And, of course, my point is that no, we can't. That the only love we can feel for the puppy or the kitten or the boyfriend or the girlfriend, the husband, the wife, the spouse, the partner... The only love you can have for your kids, for your parents, for your neighbors, for your friends, for your lovers is self-love. The only love you can feel is your love. This is, I know, challenging to you. I'm suggesting you cannot feel another person's love. work with this for a minute it's very important if you're going to discover and develop who you are that we begin with an understanding that you largely are the love that you've been looking for that you already have the love you've been looking for in your life and when you lose someone who loves you, you're not losing the source of your love. You're losing the appearance of an object of your love. Love radiates out. Again, I don't want to... It radiates out, but it reflects back. I, I, I want you to begin to think of it more as a magnetic field than something that is really given or received, but that you have an ability, even a responsibility, to generate that magnetic field 
so that if there is any kind of giving or initiation or a, or a give and take, it's got to be our responsibility, each of us as individuals, to turn on our love light, to release our fear and allow ourselves to love. That's how you love. Love is letting go of fear. You want to know how to love something or someone or increase or enhance your love? I want to love that more. Let go of your fear. How do I let go of my fear? You understand your fear. For all fear, the antithesis of love, fear, all fear is about things unknown. Sometimes fear is about danger. Rarely, but sometimes fear is about danger. But even then, what's frightening about danger is what you don't know about it. The more you know about danger, the less frightening it is. The more you know about anything, the less frightening it is. The more you understand yourself, the less frightened you become and therefore more loving. You want love in your life? You must know yourself. You see, petitioning other people to do it for you, which is what 99% of us spend our whole lives doing, is a completely ineffective and backward approach. You wonder why the divorce rate is 50%. And growing because we expect others to do our job for us. We expect others to make us feel loved, loving, and lovable. And if you do that for me, then I'll do that for you. I'm depending upon you to love me, and you depend upon me to love you, and we will be dependent together. That's called codependent. There are CODA groups, Codependence Anonymous, like Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. What is Codependence Anonymous? It's people that are trapped, emotionally arrested, in a childlike effort to earn acceptance, approval, and love through a performance from other people. Now, that's appropriate if you're a child to believe that a performance is what is necessary for you to earn from other people the sense of safety, the absence of fear, the love that you're looking for. And if I jump through enough hoops, if I get good grades, if I don't upset mom and dad too much, maybe, maybe I'll feel loved and lovable, and maybe even loving, if I could get some first. <laughs> first, I got to get love, then I'll have some to give. No, 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 it's just the opposite. Give your love, and then it comes back to you. You've got to Sow the seed before you can harvest the crop. 
you can't say, you know, well, when somebody loves me, then I'll love them. It's like the grudge where we say, well, I'll forgive them if they forgive me. If they apologize, I'll apologize, but they got to go first. <laughs> no, you go first. Always forgiving. Always loving. And again, it's not giving like a commodity, like I said before, a a quantity of something that I'm going to hand you a bushel of apples in exchange for you giving me a bushel of pears, right? Or who's that Republican running for the Senate in Nevada that wants you to pay your health care bill with a chicken, right? <laughs> uh, how many chickens do you need for appendicitis? How many, how many chickens does it take to get your tonsils out? pretty ridiculous story that came up and yet really no more ridiculous than this idea that we could petition other people to do for us love us what we have to do for ourselves which is find out what's so damn lovable about you why are you lovable most people have no idea ask the person who loves you why do you love me do you have the courage even to do that And depending on your age and your maturity, you'll have a different response when they tell you why they love you. Younger, more immature people are likely even to resist it. At the same time, we want love. If you ask the person who loves you, what's so lovable about me? Why do you love me? And they begin to tell you, you'll resist that. You'll have a resistance to it. Like, I'm not sure what to do with all of that. Doesn't that imply that now I have a responsibility to love you back in kind? No, it doesn't work that way. Two empty people are not going to fill each other with love any more than two non-swimmers are going to save each other if the life raft sinks. Love is found in the absence of fear. Fear represents things unknown. All fear is fear of the unknown, at the center of which is the self. To release the fear that blocks love, you must know thyself, the oldest wisdom in the world. Come to understand who you are and what's so lovable about you. Let that love of life be turned on within you. Stand in the middle of this electromagnetic field of love that is really the essence of who you are anyway for what religious people call God, what philosophers call the absolute or the creator or the Godhead, the, 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 or the creator or source, sorcier, the ultimate source of all things, conceivably is love as conscious awareness. See, another mistake we make is we think of love merely as an emotion when it's so much more than an emotion, it is consciousness itself. 
That's what love is. It's awareness that I exist. Remember Descartes, famous for having said, I think, therefore I am. And others have said, well, maybe it should be, I feel, therefore I am. Okay. Well, how about I'm conscious, therefore I am. I love, therefore I am. I am aware. It's not the. It's not only that I am able to think. I can watch myself think. I can observe the thought process. Therefore, I am not my thoughts. I can also witness my emotional nature. I can watch the ebb and flow of my feelings. I can watch myself become enraged and then calm down later on. You see. I can be the emotion and be the thoughts like most people, or I could breathe, uh, relax, become the love as consciousness that is the essence of all things, only fear seeming to inhibit its appearance, right? If I but know myself as love, as consciousness, I can witness my thoughts and feelings. I can choose whether to agree with a thought or how to manage a particular feeling. That's the love that we capitalize with the capital L, love, consciousness. That's the ocean or the magnetic field. That's the self in self-love, the higher self, not the egoic or separated self. The ego identifies with fear. The higher self is the loving self, right? Love also, when we talk about the magnetic nature of love, like, I feel attracted to you. I must love you. I want to be with you all the time. I like spending time with you. I want to reach out and hold your hand. I want to hug you. I want to make love to you. I want to feel that merging, that coming together as if we were one heart, a spiritual union. It's almost as if, indeed, the creation of the material universe is an emanation or radiation of oneness into many separated or apparently separated diverse forms. The one becomes the many without being diminished or affected. The one radiates itself. How could it do that? How could the one shatter itself into many pieces, but still remain whole. You would need some middle element between the one and the many, some magnetic element that would allow the one to seemingly separate the so-called creation or great separation of all these distinct forms, all these separated shapes, without being diminished or affected, for 
if God was diminished by its creation, that would not be much of a God, would it? You see, if God is less as a result of having created the physical universe, that's not very godlike to get used up and tired, right? And so, what is the middle element between the one and the many, between heaven and earth, between spirit and matter? What is the middle magnetic element that allows the one to remain undivided, except in the appearance of things in the physical world? Again, the magnetic nature of love. God has a will. You know, when it says in John, God is love, it doesn't say God is only love. There is a trinity in most religions. We talked about it just a week or two ago, didn't we? The the trinity in Christianity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is found in Egyptian mythology as king, prince, and queen. It's in Hebrew mysticism as Kether, Kachma, and Bana. It's in uh, Eastern philosophy as Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Uh, everywhere you look, it's in alchemy as sulfur, mercury, and salt. It's in time as past, present, and future. It's in space as height, width, and depth. The, the, the threeness of things, the trinity of things, is quite magnificent. Well, between spirit and matter, between God and man, this sun aspect, this Christos, is love. And it's the electromagnetic field, if you will, that allows the one to manifest as the many without being diminished or affected. It's, it's what allows for the, for the paradox of, of creation, of the one and the many that uh, how could both things be? That there is just this one thing at work, and yet it has uh, so many different forms, and, and, and not just distinct and separated, but diverse. There is no replication. You know, how could this be? What is this? Also, you have in the spirit and eternal and infinite you have on the material end the finite impermanence of all things. These polarities are miraculous, but just like the bar magnet, there needs to be a middle element, a magnetic field around the polarities so that north and south pole of the magnet, in this case spirit and matter, are not opposites, but unified by the field, the electromagnetic field that is the Christos, the son of father and mother, spirit and matter, right? And therefore unifies what might otherwise appear to be opposites into one whole thing. This is the esoteric uh, approach to, to, to love as consciousness and what is meant by love. Love is radiatory. The qualities of love are many, but among them, love is radiatory. It emanates or radiates as all energy and all spirit 
from a point out, away, in all directions. Love is radiatory. Love is magnetic. This is karma. Like attracts like. I'm attracted to you. I feel this affinity for you. I think I love you. We have something in common. We're magnetically attracted. And if we're opposites, we're repelled. I don't like that person. I'm very uncomfortable around them. Well, they feel the same way about you. Well, okay, then we'll (laughs) just go our separate ways. Every once in a while, I'll have a student point out, and you may be thinking already, wait a minute, I thought opposites attracted, and like repels like. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, if you're talking about electromagnetism in the physical world, opposites do attract and like repels. But remember that the physical world is a reflection of the spiritual And so it's backwards. On the spiritual plane, like attracts like, and opposites repel. So you have karma. Not just, I'm attracted to you because we have something in common, but we have some karmic debt, some mutual lesson that we can teach each other. And we've been attracted. What may look like destiny, fate, or providence is just this electromagnetic attraction called karma, part of a larger scheme of reincarnation. And what a beautiful design for the universe that it is love that creates the opportunity necessary to learn exactly what we need to learn, exactly when we need to learn it. It's not it's not that love is limited to our relationships with other people Love is the magnetic relationship of you to all things, circumstances, events, and opportunities. Life's lessons are attracted. Again, this is allegory, this is metaphor, this is poetry. How literally or rigidly you look at this is up to you. So love is radiatory. It is magnetic. It is cohesive. Love is sort of sticky, right? Um, It's not only magnetic, it's cohesive. It holds things together. As I've already said, the one creating the many, this wholeness manifesting, shattering itself into all of these different pieces, and yet it never really comes apart. It remains one whole thing in spite of its appearance. Magnetic, radiatory, cohesive. Another quality is refinement. Love heals. Love redeems. It refines. It changes things. It improves things. It grows things. Love is healing and understanding. Love is growing and learning and healing and improving, and unfolding, and evolving. Love is evolution, and healing, and growing, and how how do the many get back to the one? 
You see, what is this great Mandela, this giant wheel of life, where the one creates the many? Is that the end of it? No, the many have to come back to the one. How are they going to do that? What's the trail? What's the path? Love. Love is the way. Perhaps you've heard it said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. A.J. Musti, famous newspaper man, said, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Well, he's borrowing from ageless wisdom. There is no way to love. Love is the way. Happiness is the way. Success doesn't take you to love or happiness. It's love and happiness that takes you to success. Love is the way. Happiness is the way. It's the path. Here we're busy doing things to try to get to love. No, love is the way you do things (laughs) to get to whatever it is that you want. Love is the way. Now, in addition to this, Love as an emotion has countless qualities. Um, Gosh, from kindness and generosity and patience and tolerance and forgiveness and compassion. Uh, there, There are many, many, many qualities of love. If you did nothing else but began to think of love as more than an emotion, but as the life force itself, as the chi or the ki, think of love as the kundalini or the prana, the life force, um, the energy behind all things, the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost, as Catholics call it, Um, the Elan, the Elan Vital, the Esprit, as in the Esprit de Corps. Love is that passion, that zeal, that zest for life. It is all of those things. Magnetic, radiatory, cohesive, and refining in nature. It improves things, makes things better. Okay. And it's something that you that not only do you already have, it's what you are. Provided you're willing to face your fear, understand what it is that's frightening you about you, and then as you understand fear and it ceases to be, because it can only exist in the presence of your confusion and ignorance. So understand what you're afraid of. It ceases to be. Here's the love. So this explains why there is an appearance that love can be given and received. Like, if what I'm saying is true, then... Why does it appear that we can love each other and empty people could fill each other? 
and non-swimmers could save each other. <laughs> Why does it appear that two lonely, empty people can come together and fill each other with love, at least for 30 days, maybe as long as 90 days, before the empty spots come back? And one says to the other, you know, it's been uh, a nice few weeks here, but there's something going on. You're not filling me up like you used to. And, you know, the funny thing is they say, well, now that you mention it, you're not filling me up the way you used to. And so the children have their temper tantrum. Maybe we should see other people. I think we should break up. Yeah, well, I think you should get your stuff and get the hell out of here. Because you're not doing it for me. You see. They never could. So why does it appear, again, that they can? Why do, how, how is it that, that somebody can smile at you, ask for your telephone number, and you feel loved? Because they took away your fear that you were unlovable. That's all. What most of us call romantic love is a person taking away our fear that we're unlovable. And so with the promise that somebody might be interested in who we are, we drop our fear, and here comes the love. It was there all along. It's just that you were holding it back with your fear, your confusion. Remember, all fear is fear of the unknown. What's unknown? That you're lovable, that you are loved. That you don't even need reasons to be loved. You are love. That's what you are. Love is everything. It's who you are. It's what you're for. Let me, you know, it, it just occurred to me. Let's see if I can do this without messing up the webinar here. Um, I've got a quotable quote I want to read. I think it's Tolstoy. Let me see if I can find this for you real quick. I really like this. He says, uh, this is Leo Tolstoy. He says, all, everything that I understand, I understand only because I love. Everything is, everything exists only because I love. Everything is united by it alone. Love is God, and to die means that I, a particle of love, shall return to the general and eternal source. This is the Russian novelist and philosopher Leo Tolstoy. And I do have that John quote here. Look, I have that in this. It's First John 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love. And from Islam, here's the Persian poet Rumi, who says, Believe in life's, I'm sorry, believe in love's infinite journey, for it is your own, for you are love. Love is life. Three very different sources. The, the, the Sufis from Islam, John from the Christian Bible 
and the Russian philosopher Tolstoy, all arriving pretty much at the same place. Here's one more I'll share with you, Asagioli. Roberto Asagioli is a, a theosophist, a, a psychotherapist, uh, the founder of a program called Psychosynthesis. And um, he said, deep in each one of us there is an inner pull. See, that's that magnetic nature he's talking about again. Deep in each one of us there is an inner pull towards some higher form of life. And the underlying but insistent urge that prompts us, like the flower which innately turns toward the sun, to look toward something greater than ourselves. That longing, that desire, that pull, that belief that there's something more, that's love. And that's one of the challenges of being an atheist. Is what do you do with love? What is the role of love in your life? An agnostic doesn't know, so there's still room. But if you're going to be an atheist, to turn away, I understand turning away from the image of God as a man. But a force, an invisible, unseen consciousness, in order to do that, then you have to turn your back on love as well. And the fact that... that, that It's sort of like to say everything is everything is, I think Santana did a song in the 60s called Everything is Everything, sort of a psychedelic, uh, it's all too much over the top. What does that even mean, everything is everything, right? When it talks about how everything is love, God is love, God is everything, it, it gets hard to explain, but I think probably my favorite explanation is simply the imminent and transcendent definitions of divinity, where uh, the imminent definition is what religious people call God is in every seemingly separated thing, and the transcendent definition of the divine is all of those seemingly separated things are in the one God. So the all is in everything, and everything is in the all. That's a little easier than everything is everything, or the all is the all. The one is in everything. The creator is in its creation, in everything, in you, in the animals, in the plants, in the minerals. But all of those things are in the one. This is the second rubric of the Emerald Tablet in Hermetic Philosophy, the oldest known wisdom on earth is the Tibetan and the Egyptian philosophies. And in, in Hermetic philosophy, in ancient Egyptian philosophy, this is called the law of correspondence. As above, so it is below, and as below, so it is above. And the follow-on to that is, as within, so it is out there, and whatever it is out there, so it is in here. 
the universe is a, a, a set of mirrors. And to consider that the physical dense world and all of its separated forms are a reflection somehow of something invisible and unseen is difficult for most of us to get our brains around. And so are some of these concept of, concepts of love that we're talking about, self-love. This is esoteric and goes way beyond love as an emotion to an understanding of self-love is who you are and what you are. It's not a desire to love my separated self as much as it's the realization that you exist as an emanation of the Most High or the Most Divine. And you begin to see that higher self in your neighbor. And you learn to love your neighbor as thyself because both are reflections of the same thing. And people begin to use words like uh, uh, namaste, which means I see God in you. In a minute we'll talk about our personalities and, 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 and Joe will meet Jim here. But right now, namaste. I greet the violet flame, the divinity in you. I recognize myself in you as the divine. I see God in you. And in that uh, elephant standing next to you, and in the monkey, and in the cockroach, and in the dust and the dirt, as well as the sky and the clouds and the heavens and the very air that we breathe, how could anything exist outside of God? That's the problem that religion faces if it's going to anthropomorphize the divine into a being that looks like man. If we're going to take the admonition that we're in the image of God and reverse it and make God in our image, then there is something outside of God. How powerful is that? You've painted yourself into a corner. How could something exist outside of God? That's not God. If, if there's something other than God, that you don't have God. You have a pretender. And that's why there needs to be philosophy. There needs to be the, the, these esoteric approaches that are more unifying, more inclusive, and more holistic than religion. Religion is nice. It's an elementary stepping stone. It's necessary on the path. It does provide some fellowship and opportunity for worship, but it's grade school. In the search for truth, you move through that by embracing a second religion, a third religion, a fourth religion, you become comparative in exploring all religion and then moving into the greater philosophies. Not to arrive at the destination. Not to say that you get to a place where you can say, I am a religious person of this type or this sort. I mean, that's not the point. There is no there. It, it 
it's a constantly, uh, the more you know, the more there is to know. The more you know, the more you realize there is yet to be known. This is part of the wisdom as well. I think it's Lao Tzu that says to add, uh, to increase your knowledge, you add to it, but to increase your wisdom, you take away from it. You see? All right. That's a lot of information. That's a good start. Let's go um, to our questions now. We'll go to our question panel. We'll start with the... Um, let me see the telephones. Let me look at the telephones. I don't see any hands up yet. Press star 2. If you're on the telephone on your touchpad, that'll raise your hand if you have a question you'd like to ask. Or use the text box for questions or comments that you want to put in that way. Be sure and hit submit. Type in your comment or your question. Put in a name and a city and hit submit. Otherwise, I won't see it. Let's see, in Irvine, we have Robert with us this morning. And, uh, oh, I just, wait a minute. I just dumped all my questions. Hold on. Let me, <laughs> Let me go back and do this again. Hit refresh. Yeah, here we go. Robert uh, is in Irvine, and he's just saying hello. Good morning, Robert. Nice to see you. Thanks for being with us. In uh, Los Angeles, Patricia Vega says aloha, Michael. And she says aloha to my wife, Doreen, also. So glad that you're doing the Fly series again. I think it's good to hear about love in these times. It's beneficial. Thank you. Mahalo. Thank you, Patricia. In Los Osos, California, Philip says, hi, Michael. Um, now, I didn't know this. He's quoting this song, Wichitaito. Um, Wichitaito, whatever, whatever, however that's pronounced. And he says that translates to everything is everything. I never knew that. He's talking about an album from 1969, Jim Pepper Powwow album. Just got it. We'll listen to the whole webcast a little bit later today. Yeah, I remember that song, Vaguely. It's a flashback. Thanks, Philip. And uh, also in Irvine, Robert says, uh, you made an absolutely beautiful discussion about love today. Thank you. I am seeing that love is life, the universe, and everything in it. That's it. That's exactly right. Let's see if, um, where are my, um, oh yeah, my telephone callers here. Let's go over here. And again, star two if you have a comment or a question, you want to be with us live. Uh, Robert's with us in West LA. Hello, Robert. Aloha, Michael. Aloha, and good afternoon. It was a great, uh, great talk today. Thank you. Hey, do you remember, uh, you're familiar with, uh, I'm not sure what his current name is, but uh, he was once Franklin Jones and came to be known as Bubba Free John, and then he was Da Free John, and then Da Free John, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Did you ever read the the uh, Knee of Listening? No, I I owned a couple of his books, and like you know, so many would leaf through them from time to time. 
but I don't think I ever really sat down and read any of his stuff. So there's um, an essential practice um, in the knee of listening when he was uh, doing his principal work. Uh, you know, just to set this in context, what, is, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, the the ego really killeth the spirit, and it also really kills the the, uh, the flow of love between uh, uh, people. Uh, and Dr. Freejohn, like many others, identified and witnessed the ego as an actual reflex a self-contraction, he called it. And we can witness it in ourselves throughout the day, walking down the street, somebody else appears on the street while we're walking at night. We can feel a contraction. That's a profound example. We can feel a contraction in us. We can call it fear. But there's a noticeable, realizable contraction in our being. And that really restricts the flow of love. You know, we don't own love not ours we're here as an expression of love and the whole thing can express itself through us if we're not tied in a knot you know if the resistor cap isn't cranked down all the way then it's going to flow through us it's just waiting to come through us but anyway the simple practice he went for for months and years of simply witnessing that self-contraction in the presence of any moment of relatedness. Whether it was somebody he had to talk to, um, some new person came to ask him a question, whatever it was, he would witness that self-contraction and in doing so would ultimately dissolve it. And uh, if, if there was anybody interested in a concrete practice that they could do that also involves self-awareness and consciousness, that's definitely one of them. I just thought I'd throw that in. Cause I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I've never heard the term uh, used quite that way, and you're using it as a synonym for fear. Right. Um, it's also um, a way, it seems to me, of talking about the delusion that there is something here that is other than us. Yeah, that's that's a profound way of saying it. Exactly. The, the the our resistance to the idea yeah. that we are not separate from in other words the idea that we're separate from the rest of existence. I mean people wonder why life is so stressful. It's filled with a with this nightmarish illusion that there are things here that are not us, and therefore unknown and perhaps threatening. And, of course, none of it's true, but that's the game. That's the delusion. And then you're saying, as, as students and seekers, we can be aware of this, breathe into it, reorient ourselves, and enjoy the ecstasy and the bliss of then realizing again, oh, that's just me in a different form. Yes, since, you know, we, I mean, we could, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but, I mean, many have looked at this, and, and it's possible for anyone to have the realization that as you look out upon the world, 
realize that the perception itself, the construct you're witnessing, isn't out there at all. Right. It's, it's, it's inside your head. So what does that say about you? It's a holodeck. I, you know, yeah. It's a holodeck. We're on the holodeck. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, uh, yeah, exactly. That's a perfect example. So then, you know, a lot of these ideas about existence really get blown out of the water when you realize, oh, my God, the thing is actually occurring inside our heads. Right. And we're wandering around inside that. Well, what then of reality? And I realize that, you know, for the guy uh, in all the fear of the uh, recent uh, uh, law, the proposal signed in law in Arizona, uh, the, the recent draconian legislation, there was a uh, an African-American man here in Los Angeles who, who protested that, hey, wait a minute, we have to secure the borders and make sure American citizens are safe. This was a man whose son was shot. Uh, one night by an undocumented uh, person who had uh, just been released from county jail and uh, and, and this uh, guy just released from county jail murders this this young black man and and I realize that everything that we're talking about is a tough sale in the face of people's grief oh yeah but the reality seems to be uh, there seems to be overwhelming evidence uh, that is available to any of us that um, that uh, this is a a, a construct uh, that we are working with that is a representational system uh, that is created largely by the mind, but we can work with it and get through it and experience this thing called love and the flow of love if we can use our consciousness to override and dissolve this noticeable, realizable, visceral self-contraction in any one of us. It's one of the reasons we have bodies. It makes subtle experiences a bit more dense so we can realize them. Yeah, your point is very well taken. I think that um, if I had access to that fellow, I'd remind him that if the person that murdered his son was a citizen, it wouldn't have hurt less uh, to lose, to lose, um, you know, whether the guy that killed him was documented or not is hardly uh, the point. And to go even uh, beyond that and to emphasize the point that we're talking about love beyond emotion is to say that uh, the more somebody loves you, um, uh, it, let's see, how can I say this clearly? O.J. loved Nicole. I mean, he wouldn't have killed her if he didn't love her. If he didn't care, he wouldn't have killed her. So love is behind a lot of murder. And yet that's not the love we're talking about, the love right. of passion. Or the love of emotion, we're we're talking about the consciousness that stands above that. And as you say, that's a tough sell to people. But you know, here we're talking about love, like it's this wonderful thing of, uh, and and yet it's so easily conflated with the vagarities of emotion. And lots of times, people do really crazy things because of emotional love. 
we're talking about love as consciousness, as awareness itself. Uh, exactly. Couldn't say it better. Very Couldn't different. say it better myself. The, the, the emotional, emotional love is kind of like an oxymoron. Even I think um, <laughs> most of your emotions that come up in it, that are spoken about in these terms are really have to do with conservation of resources, attachment to things that are valuable to us, and the emotions that these things engender in us are because of fear of loss. You know, uh, love is is something that's so etheric and so subtle. Um, it's part of beingness. Uh, it, it can. It, it doesn't have to be talked about. It doesn't have to be expressed through actions. It's expressed through simple being. And um, well, like I say, you could you could probably talk about it for the next hundred. People have been talking about it for a hundred years. Yep, hundreds and, of years. And we got a long way to go too. But uh, you know, we're we're building a vehicle here. Um, our our physicalness and our brain, our mind, our conscious awareness, mental and emotional nature, we are creating the wiring now that's necessary for us in, it seems to me, ever ever greater numbers to understand who we are and what we're for. And and we're beginning to hit our stride here. We're, we're getting to a point where we're turning our backs on war. Uh, we're becoming intolerant of, of of hunger and injustice. And, you know, how far we'll go and at what rate is hard to say. But, you know, this it's so, it's so clear to me that evolution is at work in the field of consciousness as well um, that, Sometimes I'm surprised it's not discussed uh, more often than that. Like the the political conservative spectrum, how could conservatives who want things to stay the same ever um, beat so you know or defeat the progressive who are men and women who want things to be better when the whole universe is in this state of unfoldment or refinement will always move from conservative toward progressive things will always get better and with i think a greater and greater urgency as more of us look around and go oh my lord look at the work we have to do here look at what we're capable of doing and the frontiers that i've heard debated in the last couple of weeks barack obama is making some changes and deciding not to go back to the moon and yet they want to take man to Mars and explore outer space you know when I think of Star Trek and going where we've never gone before I think it's an inner frontier a transcendent transcendental frontier uh, I had a client just yesterday at the end of a meditation say to me boy there's a lot of room in there <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? I just thought it was so wonderful. Just yeah, there is <laughs> those universes of it. Well, it's the infinite space. It's the it's the parallel universe they're always talking about in yeah. Star Trek. The 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 universe that's available to us through the pursuit of technology is just the mirror image of the other one, the truer one. 
um, which is only available through an exploration of our own consciousness in this little corner of the universe that we seem to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you, Robert. Aloha. Aloha. Have a wonderful, uh, wonderful day. Sun the weekend. All right, let's uh, uh, do our visualization exercise today, our guided imagery. We do one of these um, with every one of these classes. And then hopefully you'll join us next week for two, part two of the six-part series, which is, again, going to be about healing childhood hurt. Um, After that, week number three, two weeks from today, we'll do the language of emotions, what do they mean? What do your current feelings have to tell you about you? And then four and five will be problem-solving and decision-making and goal-setting, and then six will be some peak performance, a little sports psychology stuff with some pain control and healing, and um, maybe we'll do some accelerated learning there as well. Okay. Well, let's uh, close our eyes and relax. And, uh, oh, I have a couple of questions I want to answer after the visualization exercise also. So I'm going to make a mental note to do that. So close your eyes and relax if this is a good time for you anyway. Get comfortable. And I want you to think of yourself as balanced and centered. Do a couple of shoulder shrugs and some head rolls and get sort of loose as you think about balancing your head on your neck and shoulders bring your shoulders back open up the rib cage feel very relaxed from the top of your head to the soles of your feet create and sense a letting go feeling Muscles relaxing and unwinding. Take every once in a while a nice, slow, deep breath, and especially as you exhale, feel that letting go. Inhale, ideally, through the nose. Nice, slow, deep breaths as if you were pulling in strength and power. As you peak hold for just a moment, And now as you exhale, just as slowly, feel that letting go feeling. Or you may wish to say as you inhale, in comes the good air. And think again of your body being oxygenated with clean, fresh air. And as you exhale, imagine black, oily smoke. Out goes the bad air. And imagine exhaling stress and anxieties fears, doubts, worries, and apprehensions, releasing all that is negative. And then allow your breathing to find its natural cadence. Let your body breathe itself, in other words, all by itself. And become mindful of your breathing, okay? by placing your attention at the bottom of your nose for just a few moments. 
as if you existed as a little spark of awareness on that ridge line of cartilage between the nostrils, and you can feel the breath at the very point where it enters and leaves the body. And you can easily focus your attention by becoming interested, even fascinated, at the ability of the body to breathe itself all by itself. And so, too, to regulate body temperature and blood pressure and pulse rate and respiration, to digest food, to fight disease, to repair and replace cells and hundreds of other reactions and chemical actions, all on autopilot, as if by design to free your conscious awareness, to be in the world, but not of it. To be focused into form and witness the experience of seeming to be separated from that which is not you. if only for the purpose of witnessing from this unique point of view these automatic physiological processes like breathing. To be mindful of the breath in time is to feel almost as if you're watching someone else's body breathing. And in the same way, with a little practice, you can become mindful of your thoughts and feelings. You can observe your anger without being an angry person, for example. You could remember loneliness from a place that knows no loneliness at all, but now has an experience, albeit relative, of what appeared to be loneliness. And maybe that's what the whole illusion of separation is for, to create the opportunity to realize just what is a dream and what is real. To find the meaning between cause and effect to witness right here and right now existence around you 
and to move effortlessly, patiently, and effortlessly from the anxiety of believing that which is not you somehow exists around you through harmony to a union. At least make your approach to harmony. Consider that there is a middle ground or a path that leads from separation and diversity to union and wholeness, and that that path, that middle element, is harmony. And you can learn to harmonize the various parts of yourself. You can learn to harmonize and manage your own thoughts and feelings and, and your reactionary behavior as well. And harmonize your relationships, at first with those who you love and who seem to love you, and then with those for whom there is some affinity, and, and eventually begin to harmonize relationships with people you don't really like, and then maybe even people that play the role of enemy and appear to threaten you directly. Your approach back to the oneness of things to complete the cycle is via the path of harmony that is a path of love love is the approach love is the unifying agent love is the magnetism that unifies and harmonizes separation, diverse forms with unity itself. It is love as consciousness far beyond much higher frequencies than emotional love, but love is consciousness that allows the spiritual oneness of things to manifest as so many apparently diverse and separated forms without being diminished or affected in any way, only through love. And so it makes perfect sense that love would redeem and refine and improve, that love heals, that love is laughter, love is life. Love is growth. Love is unfoldment. Love is the answer to every problem. Love is the solution. And so I'd like you to imagine yourself rooted to the earth either sitting wherever you're sitting now on a chair a pillow, a sofa the floor 
or imagining yourself sitting in a paradise, in a garden, in a mountain meadow, or a beautiful seashore, or deep in a green valley, beneath waterfalls and babbling brooks. Imagine yourself rooted into the earth in any of those situations, as if you, like a tree or a bush, like a flower or a blade of grass, has roots that reach right down into the earth and feel yourself connected, grounded as an energy being, a spiritual being of energy. Connect yourself to the earth feel grounded or plugged in. At the same time, you feel receptive at the very top of your head to a downward impress of spirit coming into matter, seeking the earth, and you are the medium, the media, the conduit through which spirit comes into matter. And as that middle element, you are the heart and soul And you not only ground spirit, providing its interface to the material world, you then radiate on the horizontal, you emanate love, and so feel yourself being filled with this impress, the life force, the spirit, the the chi, the ki, the prana, the kundalini, the elan, Imagine your batteries being charged and supercharged as you become recharged and radiant. You emanate that love in all directions without hesitation or reservation. Why would you withhold your love Why would you withhold anything given so freely to you? Why would you pretend there's not enough love when the more you give, radiate, emanate, and offer up freely your love in all forms as kindness and compassion and patience and tolerance and forgiveness and mercy and service to other people. The more you give away your love, the more you receive, and thus you enhance the flow. Why would you ever hold on and block the flow and create a resistance when you can give so freely and pass forward what is given to you freely, the breath, the love, that is life itself. Breathe that out into the world without hesitation or reservation. Let go. It's no struggle. There's no effort. There's no pushing or forcing love. Let it go. It is radiant like light. And feel 
how it feels to be filled and radiant and bring that feeling with you effortlessly back into the room as you remember where you are in the physical world Reorient yourself to the sound of my voice. Remember in a moment what you'll see as you open your eyes. And now take a slow, deep breath, filling your lungs. Hold as you peek, and as you exhale, open your eyes now. Wide awake, alert, rested, refreshed, back in the room, feeling fine. Better than before, wide awake. All right. So that's number one in the FLY program, self-love. Join us next week. We'll have more. Thanks for being with us today. I appreciate your uh, participation, the telephone calls, the questions on the uh, on the Internet. Oh, and I did say I was going to uh, take a minute to answer a couple real quickly here at the end, so let me do that. A couple of questions that, that came in. One actually before the event from Las Vegas, a very existential question, uh, Larry wanting to know what proof there is that he even exists, and how does he know that he's not merely a thought or some kind of computer program? And uh, the answer to that is consciousness. (laughs) You can't think your way to God, all right? You uh, you can make an approach by feeling, but it's not an emotional feeling. You have to still the body, quiet the thoughts, and calm the emotions to see what remains. And what remains, Larry, when you do an exercise like what we did, but even quieter, without a narrative, a contemplation or a contemplative emptying of the mind, that still body, that quiet mind and calm heart remains somehow. You continue to exist with an awareness that will answer that question in a way that I could never do it for you. Right? All I have are words. I could hope to evoke it. and We, we, we make that attempt, that approach every week. But the answer to the question is meditate. <laughs> and become mindful. And uh, again, probably not what you were looking for, but that's all I could do for you right now. And uh, there was one other here, but I'm not sure I understand it. Uh, Philip in Los Osos says, How far west can we go? Philip, you'll have to send me an email. I, I'm I'm spacing out. I'm not sure what that's a reference to. How far west can we go? Philip had uh, brought up that Witchy Taito song that I, I got to check out. Oh, Ronico, oh, Ronico, hey, hey. Remember that song? I don't know what it means. <laughs> but Philip says it means everything is everything. All is in the one, and the one is in the all means. The one is in every seemingly separated thing. And all of these seemingly separated things are part of the one. And uh, that's everything is everything. That's that LSD, it's all too much kind of revelation there. 
Hey, again, thanks for being with us. Mahalo. Uh, as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. We'll talk to you next week. Aloha from Maui. This is Michael Benner. <laughs>